Awesome, Michael, man. What's going on? How you doing? Pretty good. Yeah, what about you? Uh, just surviving, man. Surviving. It's a long weekend. I didn't even know until I woke up today that it was a long weekend. The days kind of blend by. I mean, it normally happens anyway when you're, when yeah, you're, you when you're like, entrepreneur. Okay. There's like, yeah, there's like no schedule nowadays. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So how's your schedule been? I mean, earlier this year, we talked, uh, we were trying to schedule, schedule you in. And actually, the weekend you were scheduled to come on the podcast is when the pandemic got called. Right? Yeah. And uh, we sent her an email saying that, you know, we can't continue with this. Two of uh, the five people that were supposed to come on the podcast, two of them, one of them had flu-like symptoms. Other one, his wife had flu-like symptoms. Right? So we're like, we can't continue this. And I think you just came back from Spain at that time too, right? Yeah, true, true. Yeah. Um, so we had to call it off. But uh, we have this new format and we're rolling, man. So let's talk a little bit about that. Like, um, how's, how's uh, this pandemic been for you? What are you facing? Um, actually, there's not much difference. So I switched to like online school about, I think like five, six months ago. Mm -hmm. So for me, like the school aspect, it was kind of similar. And I stayed home a lot. Uh, in terms of like the Spain trip though, that was like scary. Like I remember the day when I got to Spain, that's when like the first came, uh, first case came out in Spain, yeah. which is, yeah. and also I think it was the same city too. But thank God, like, I think right after I came back, that's when it started to blow up. I think, like, the day I came back, there was only, like, seven cases, something like that. So, I don't know. For me personally, not much of a difference. Like, I like to have kind of, like, a stoicism mindset towards a lot of things. It's like, mm -hmm. if I cannot significantly control this subject, I just try to block myself out from it. Like, with coronavirus, of course, it's important to stay informed, right? Like, I don't want to be out there hanging out all the time. But I think for most of us, like we already know enough about coronavirus, right? We know like what not to do, what to do, uh, like wear face masks, et cetera. So for me, it's really, I just realized like the reason I'm searching up all these info, it's not about like, I want to solve something or like be more informed. It's just for my own fear and anxiety. So what I end up doing is uh, I spent one day making this like Chrome extension <laughs> to block coronavirus from everywhere. You can check it out on the Chrome store. It's called coronavirus blocker or something like that. Nice. So nowadays, I just like don't see anything about coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> that's a blessing and a curse too, right? Yeah. Um, uh, that's cool that you did that. So uh, let's go give a little background info. Um, I mean, at 16, you decided to drop out of school and go pursue uh, online learning. And that's one of the things, that's how we met, right? We started talking about this early, about, uh, I think, uh, yeah, late last year. When you first started doing this, you came and saw us at Huddle's Share Space and we had a great in-depth combo about you at 16 wanted to drop out of school because it's too slow and you wanted to learn uh, machine learning, right? You want to pursue your own passions and, 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 and learn things and just do and make things, right? Yeah, and then just so uh, also is, uh, so I didn't drop out of school completely. I, I don't okay. think I'm for it. Like, I don't, I am not really like for like drop out of school, but for me, I just switched to online school just because it's mm -hmm. like a faster, um, it's just a faster pace and I can go at my own pace and manage my own time. Um, but yeah, let's quick clarification. Cool. Yeah, um, absolutely. So online schooling. And we're, you're, you're actually telling us about um, the perks of online schooling. You're going to pursue things at your own pace. And um, the fact that you get to be your own, you know, have your own schedule and work around it. Um, so that's, I mean, that's, that was really forward thinking in your end, right? Not a lot of people look at that and say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pursue this on my, my own. And then be able to also convince uh, parents as well to like, hey, I'm going to drop out and do my own thing. You know, don't was, worry about me. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, you know, walk us through that. Like, um, how's that been now? Like with everyone now transitioning um, into online school and you kind of ahead of the curve, are your friends reaching out and asking you about what you're doing different or are you talking to people about this? Yeah, I talked to some other people. Um, so for my school that I switched to, it's a bit different than other people. So I think how they're doing it right now, I was in TDSB, so my friends reach out. They are going on like a Google Meet or like a Zoom call. So it's still like the same schedule. Mm-hmm. Right, so it's still not flexible. It's just like school from home. Essentially for me, um, I went with Blythe Academy. And then with that, it is more like I can just go at any pace I want. I got to do the assignments, do the test, um, like call with the teachers only during like midterms. But yeah, I think, so the main reason I went into it, one is like the experience also, right? Like I, I knew education was like an area of interest for me. That's something I want to make a huge impact in the future. And especially e-learning, I really believe that's the future of education. So a lot of it is like, I want to experience that uh, and eventually like make an impact in that space. And I find that it's super interesting, like with the whole coronavirus situation, how it's basically accelerating the transition to e-learning almost. Uh, which is a topic we could talk about later on. Um, but yeah, there's there's not much of a difference, I would say, between like other people and then um, the online school that I'm doing. But yeah. Yeah. No, let's, let's jump into that. So that's what you're interested in pursuing is uh, online education, not just for yourself, but also building platforms for other people, right? Um, what are your thoughts about that? Because we talked about this too. Like you didn't like the, the pacing of school of like being told what to learn and how to learn it and being marked and scheduled. I completely resonated with that um, growing up and school was never an environment for me. And a lot of people, uh, you know, we talked to a lot of founders, a lot of entrepreneurs, and they're, they're really just misfits who haven't found a place in the schooling system. They just wanted to exit the system and kind of do something kind of different and build their own kind of reality. Um, so can you walk us through that? What kind of environment would you like to see? Yeah. So. I guess first I'll talk about like my major pain points with my school. So I was always like doing stuff outside of school. Um, like I remember before when we had like assignments, I would always try to like do something that's out of the expectations. So I remember there was like this, we had to make this like doghouse prototype thing. And I ended up making this like modern doghouse with like an animated uh, 3D ad. But I don't know, my teachers just didn't really like it. They just wanted me to like stick to this like strict uh, idea of like what this assignment should be, which I get, that's like how Rubik's work. But I really think it's like super limited. There's always like a hundred percent, right? And that's like the highest bar you can go. And you can't, there's not much room for creativity, but that's like the obvious thing. Everyone knows that. I think another key thing though, is a difference between teaching information versus intuition. So by that, I mean, the way that my teachers usually teach is just get you to memorize a bunch of formulas, right? Hmm. And I'll just give an example. When we were learning about physics formulas, the uh, kinematics formulas, um, I forgot a lot of it because I haven't been doing physics. I should get back into school <laughs> properly. But uh, yeah, in terms of that, we just like did a bunch of worksheets and that was it. And then the way the teacher was talking is like, you know what, just do a hundred worksheets and you will remember the formulas and you do good on the test. Right? Like, but yeah. the whole point is for you to understand the concept so that you have like a strong base of knowledge that you can build other knowledge on, uh, on top of that, right? Um, like for me, I think the key to learn is actually to think like the people who invented those concepts. Like think like a mathematician where you're le- when you're learning about math, right? Not just like, you know, memorize it and just like forget about it. Um, and in school, I think at least 
in my school and in like most schools that I see, like they do a horrible job at that. That's one area that I really hated about school. Um, but I still think like school obviously is needed. It's like a baseline for society. However, it does put like an upper limit to how ambitious you want to go. And I think it's limiting a lot of people, especially like no one ever thinks beyond school. I think that's like, mm-hmm. that's the most dangerous thing, right? Like anyone can go learn about AI. Anyone can even become as good as like, I would say like a PhD in like math if they wanted to and just like full on grind on that, right? But because there's always this like 100%, there's always like this course schedule. There's nowhere where you can just like build your own schedule and build like your own life and be fully in control of that. Uh, it really limits you to like this ideal idea of a student. Yeah, I completely understand. And I completely um, uh, sympathize with that kind of mentality. I mean, when I was in school, I was a horrible student. And most of the time it's just, I was not engaged. I wasn't interested in stuff. And honestly, I was really bad at memorizing, right? Memorizing names, dates, these things like it didn't fit into me, but I really liked learning concepts, especially like, like deep concepts where quite a lot of problem solving, right? I mean, that was really engaging. I was really, I really liked that part of it, but school is never a place for it. So I kind of learned outside the system and I was fortunate enough to have at least one teacher who like got me super engaged. That's the only reason I got into university. Because one teacher, um, shout out to Miss Grace Price, who like, who did not, and it wasn't like she was empathetic and like cared about the student. It was just she made it hard. Her course was super. She ta- she came and she's like she she was teaching at the university level in grade eleven, and okay. the way she would structure it is like on the back of the school board, in the back of the class is literally a list of everyone by ranked by top marks. <laughs> wow! Right? And it's all it all it's all by uh, by student number. And she didn't care that it was against guidelines. She's like, this is how I'm going to teach my class. And then second thing is you got something called price tags. Okay. So she would give um, like a receipt for anyone who answered questions in class, participated, or just did generally well, right? If she's uh, like, if you paid attention to any one of her, one of her, one of her uh, lectures and you, uh, you answer questions, you got price tags. And these price tags are vouchers. You can redeem. Each one was worth one mark that you can redeem on exams, projects, quizzes, anything you wanted. So you had this freedom of choice, but you build like this capitalist system within the classroom. And uh, she did a whole bunch of other things. Like, so she threw in other things like, you know, she'll have exams, but also projects. She'll throw in like creative projects. She'll put lab work in. So it's like four, three, four different ways you can learn and and engage, right? But the really thing that I really liked was day one of of the the, the class, she walked in the middle, she walked in front of the classroom, didn't talk to anybody and started drawing, right? She drew out this huge diagram, the entire blackboard, I remember this, right? Of, of the entire process of uh, photosynthesis and cellular metabolism. Like every single chemical, every, how every protein breaks apart and enzymes get involved and what get, what's the process of that? The 32 stage step, each of them, right? Looks super complicated with like all the abbreviations and stuff. And you look at that, you're like, what the, you're at grade 11, like 16, right? You're at yeah. your age. And you're like, what, the, what, what is all this? And she's like, by the time you graduate my class in grade 12, not grade 11, grade 12, you will have this memorized. And on your final exam, this will be one of the questions, to draw this out by memory. And everyone's like, what the hell is she talking about? But for me, that was the first time I woke up in class. 
So I'm like, whoa, that seems like a hard challenge, right? And uh, there's a whole bunch of other things she did too, but like that was the main trigger point. She got me interested, right? By, I, by um, there's like a lot of, I guess, key ideas we can highlight. And I think some things I really liked about like the things that she was doing, like even having this capital, like game, almost gamifying school. Yeah. Right. And we will probably talk about this later in terms of uh, like ideas for how to improve education. But I think she hit on a lot of those points, even having like this ranking system. So there's almost like social pressure too. fear is like one of the best ways to get people motivated. Almost. This is a whole other thing, but uh, yeah, I found that super interesting. I've never ever like met a teacher that's even close to that. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the only reason like my, I was like a, I think I told you about this, when I was a grade nine, grade 10, grade, even up to grade 11, grade nine, grade 10, I was a 50 student, averaging in my 50s. Just I just didn't care, right? I just did barely enough just to pass. Like sometimes I'll sit in a test and calculate what would I need to do to just get exactly 60? Like that was my, that was my mental thing because I didn't care. Like it didn't mean anything to me. Like what am I learning for, right? Like what am I doing exams for, right? Um, and then, so, and then grade 11 hit and she got me inspired that one class I started doing well in that triggered me to do other well in other classes and, so, and then she started talking about university and going to university and what that means I'm like oh maybe I want to go there so I tried and then I, I went from a 50 student to grade 12 uh, like first semester I got like 80, 85 86 uh, grade point average and that got me into school you know pre-med school right pre-med program and I purposely picked one of the hardest programs to get into and I, and, I, and I had a crazy course load. And anyways, like the idea of challenge, I think is so important underutilized, right? If you, like, I remember like my guidance counselors and people telling me, you know, take it easy, you know, like maybe yeah. take a college for a degree, not a university program. Cause you know, we have university versus college, like applied versus like academic streams. And like, maybe take that, right? Like take it easy because you're not doing well in class. Yeah. But it was someone who challenged you that actually made you step up and above. And that's so important, right? And I, I never forgot that. And when I got in university, like the main thing that we got out of it was freedom of choice, right? You can, like I remember university, like the first, like, I don't know, I think the whole first year, I skipped my actual classes and went to other classes, right? Just to see what's out there, just to learn what's going on there, right? And that idea of choice, freedom, and like gamification, other principles can apply. Like can make learning and schooling more engaging. And I think that's super important. Um, but how do we take that and put it on a platform? Yeah, exactly. So I actually have this notebook. Let me just get it real quick. Okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I used to just like write down ideas. I have like the perfect e-learning platform, everything. And there's like a few key concepts that I realized. Uh, so let me just okay, get to that page. Let's see. Where do I write this? Probably another notebook. <laughs> I have a lot of these. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think, so first thing to realize is like, people do have different philosophies that they, they live by. Like for us, I think we're really driven by challenge. I think there's this like cool personality test. It's not the Meyer-Briggs. There's this one other thing that uh, categorizes you like the challenger, whether you like challenges, et cetera. But I think for us, like this is probably like the minority of the population, mm -hmm. right? For other people- Are you cut up there? What, what is the population? So I was gonna say that for us, like liking challenges, it's like a minority of the population, I would say. Maybe it came out from a lot of his like childhood experiences. Like for me, I just knew I was like always building stuff. I always wanted to like get ahead. Um, maybe it's like the way that I was parented too.
but I think for most people, like they they don't actually desire uh, like challenges, right? They don't actually want it. Like maybe for some people, it's just out of their own like fear and them wanting to stay in their comfort zone. But I don't think you can just like apply to this philosophy to everyone else. So I think first thing is like realize what's the target audience, right? Like this platform, people learn differently. People have different philosophies of life. Uh, first thing I would actually say is to have something that's like less structured. I feel like school, it's too structured and mm. limited, right? But then uh, I think the instinct, like for people like us, what we think about is like, okay, how can we like structure something where it pushes people to like do crazy things, like build companies, be entrepreneurs, et cetera, right? But I think it's still important to realize that not everyone actually wants that, right? Yeah. Um, however, so let, let me get back to what I was thinking about. Hmm. Okay, I can't seem to find it. <laughs> but anyways, I think for me, there's like a few key principles of learning. Mm -hmm. um, one thing is definitely like not teaching memorization, right? And there's a lot of research in this area, so I won't go too deep in it, but it's just basically how can you get people to understand information and get it to stick, right? There's like, um, think frequent recalls of information. There's um, also, there's a thing I coined like the zombie effect term. Basically the idea is like, often when you like listen to someone talk, right? Although you think you're learning about something, like even probably many of the people like watching this podcast right now, like they think they're listening and like internalizing all this information, but they're probably gonna forget this, right? How can you induce that like flow state and fully focused state, right? I think um, a lot of ways to do that is like one, making videos more interactive, which is this project I'm actually currently working on. Uh, the goal is to just build like the infrastructure for interactive video. Anyways, that's a project I'm super curious, of, uh, super excited to work on, but basically one aspect right now, like e-learning is just a platform. You have some videos, lectures, and that's it. Like the chance of someone zoning out in one of those videos and like getting distracted is like basically a hundred percent. Right. Mm -hmm. And then most people, they don't even realize that they don't know. Like, I, I don't know about uh, adults, but at least people uh, like teenagers that I see, at least in high school, when they watch those, you know, math videos, science videos, they don't even like rewind once, which I find, find interesting. And they're like, whoa, I learned so much. But for anyone who's like been to lectures, you keep asking questions like, okay, how does this work, right? That's the proper way to learn. You got to keep rewinding. Like when I watched, uh, when I was learning calculus, I remember I like watched this video and rewinded like 20 times. The key idea is like, how can you build that into a product, right? Like most people are not going to rewind a video 20 times. They're just going to watch it. Mm -hmm. How can you build all these best pr practices of learning into an online platform. So that's still something I'm figuring out right now. Um, I don't have a direct idea, but what I'm interested in working on right now is like more the, the infrastructure for these components, right? Like how can you make creating interactive videos more easy? I think that's the biggest, biggest challenge um, in e-learning and you're absolutely right. It's like it, it, the passivity of e-learning as in its current state, it's, it's not effective, right? The whole point of in-person learning, why people choose to go in-person is to have that interactivity, but also to have someone to take, oh, be held accountable for your learning, yeah. right? I mean, they're there for you to resource if you don't understand, but also to interact with, ask questions, right? And, and that interactivity is the main part of that. Yeah. So what does that infrastructure look like? What, what's the requirements? Yeah, so first I think, 
it's best to first come back to like the original purpose of learning, right? Like what's the goal? But it's just to pass down knowledge and like get people to understand concepts, right? And then you can think about, okay, how do you enforce that? Well, right now in school, a lot of like we have the whole failing structure. Like if you go below 60, right? Like it's, it's a lot of like fear-based mechanisms to prevent that. And uh, so right now we're talking more like how do you get people to learn, right? Like earlier we're talking about okay, how can you deliver knowledge in the best way? But now it's like, how can you hold people accountable, get them to learn, right? So um, for me, I think first is like break that down into like almost like a formula. Like if you think about the most basic level, it's like what gets someone to like complete a certain action, right? And this is a way, way I look at it. So I'm a huge like fan of productivity hacking and I've mm -hmm. like read a bunch of books in this area. So first like, okay, what's the formula for like productivity and like doing a certain task? I think it is whether you will do something is your current state of willpower minus the minimum amount of willpower needed to do a certain task. So for example, let's say, am I going to meditate like this morning or like tomorrow morning, right? If let's say I just like slept at like 4 a.m. and I was super tired, like my willpower motivation is like at zero, the chance of me meditating is like basically zero, right? Because it doesn't meet that base threshold of amount required to meditate. So there's two things you can do to optimize that. One is how can you increase people's base level of willpower? Second is how can you minimize the amount of willpower required, right? The first question is more personal. It's like, okay, you got to exercise, right? That gives you higher willpower. Uh, there's a lot of more tips and tricks, but I think with a platform, your goal is essentially how do you minimize the amount of willpower needed for someone to do a certain task? And then there's a lot of ways to do that. One is um, like gamification. That's a big thing. So that's kind of using like dopamine or using positive effects on the brain to get people hooked into do, doing a certain task. And there's other effects that you can play on other things like fear, right? What if you just displayed like a trajectory of a student based on how, based on how well they're performing, right? Mm -hmm. Imagine like the trajectory is like, it shows, okay, like if you don't do this thing, like you're not going to get into this university <laughs> or like you're going to fail. And they're like, this is what's going to happen. Right. Yeah. No, you know what I, this reminds me of, like, I think of the exact same thing, right? Like I, I was a huge Call of Duty like fiend growing up. I love Call of Duty. And the main reason like, people like Call of Duty is not just the game, mm -hmm. but the achievements, right? Mm -hmm. The ranking up, right? Yeah. And the things that it unlocks and stuff. And I always used to think when I was younger, I'm like, why can't life be like this? You know, why yeah. can't doing something unlock something else? And I know this unlocks this, so I have to do this first to get to that point, right? Um, not to cut you off, but like, absolutely, the idea of ranking up and like systemizing and seeing where I can get to if I do this right now and if I get this achievement point, right? But I think um, also right now, these things that we're talking about, I think it's more like incremental changes, I would say. Mm -hmm. These are things that definitely should be implemented, I think. I, I don't see any reason why, like, uh, all the, the biggest companies like D2L, I don't know why they're not working on something like that. <clears throat> but definitely, you know, having some gamification or having ways of lowering the amount of willpower needed to do a task, maybe even through, like, a Chrome extension that, like, blocks out distractions. Or, like, if you do, like, one hour of work, <laughs> you get to play games for, like, 25, something like that. Um, mm -hmm. I think we're still thinking, like, incrementally. I think what's yep. important especially in times like this, like right now we're going through a huge transformation with the whole coronavirus situation, right? Like how can you completely reinvent the education system? Absolutely. Like why does it even have to be 
this idea, I call it student manufacturing, right? Having a teacher, having like this lecture and then just like bring, putting knowledge down to like 30 kids or something like that. Why does it even have to be like that? Um, and I haven't thought a lot about this, but one idea is like, what if you even have like students teach each other? Like Reddit is one example. You can be a teacher, but you can also answer other people's questions, right? What if like, when you're thinking about school, it's almost like community-based effort where like everyone learns together. What if that's like, that's a whole different model of school, right? It's no longer like one to many learning. It's like collaborative community learning, right? So I think we should think about, okay, these incremental changes, like, okay, how can we, you know, like lower the amount of willpower needed, et cetera. But I think we also should take advantage of this time to think about how can we completely change our idea of a classroom like why is there even the need to be a classroom right yeah or like yeah. why and this might be a bit controversial like why is there even a need for a teacher right i think yeah. it's yeah. important for us to ask these questions because at the end of the day uh we just need to somehow first figure out okay what skills we want the future generations to have and like think about the philosophies that we want to optimize whether that's like to our moral values or to optimize like technological innovation which is the thing um, that i personally value and then you built like a system on top of that to fit the purpose, right? Mm -hmm. And then I think we just need to think about like that purpose instead of getting hang up on like our old ideas of how a classroom works. Yeah, absolutely. One of the, one of the ideas, like uh, exactly what you're talking about, right? Like I, I got really hooked on thinking about is like, imagine this, right? Like there's like about seven different types of intelligences, right? Everything from IQ is what we, what we, what we right now specialize in is the ability to memorize things and repeat it back, right? But machines are completely taking over in that. There's emotional intelligence, understanding people. But there's also like, um, like uh, I can't, I don't know how to say it, but uh, kinesthetic intelligence. It's like body movements, right? Um, and how, how well tuned your mind is to your body and that's movements, right? So like super extreme, like great athletes, right? They're so in tune with themselves and their bodies because, you know, and they're, they're so coordinated. That's a type of intelligence. Um, you know, there's like spiritual intelligence, meditative intelligence, there's a few other ones. I, I don't know exactly what the name of the charts, but imagine like we can get, we can find a system that helps people find out what they are good at, the way they learn or what they're specialized in and double down on that, right? I mean, why do we need to be a generalist and know a little bit of everything? Why not get people who are really good at one particular, one thing or one, thi one theory, be really legendary in that kind of, kind of field and compete in that field to get be better and, 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 and uh, better themselves, but also better that field, right? So I thought about this, like imagine if, if, if you have a bunch of people, a bunch of students or a bunch of kids who are super into, into sports, right? Yeah. Why not get them to pursue sports? But what's behind that, right? They have, they have to know their diets, control their diets. There's a lot of intelligence that goes into that now. Like, you know, there's a lot of sports training that goes into it. Well, there's another subset of students who are really into like health or sciences and stuff like that. Why can't you pair them together? Well, this is the project, right? The sports team, your local sports team or your school team is this, right? We'll get like the people who are interested in the science behind it to be like the science doctors for them, right? Help them manage their, help them manage their diet, help them figure out, you know, how to, how to optimize themselves, right? Use tech to like better themselves, right? And you can bring in, you can bridge in other, other, kind of, other kind of mechanics too, too. Like you can bring in people who are into mechanical learning into building machines or building kind of kind of tools to better track that sports team, right? And the sports team can like, you know, the people who are into the athletic stuff can can use that to translate 
learning and other, other industries and fields, right? So it's kind of like a collaborative kind of environment where like you, each person, each person specializes in that field, but you're also part of a larger structure that supports you. So you're supporting that and giving back that structure by being good at what you're doing, right? And it's an interesting idea to think about like, how do you structure that? How do you get that? And, you know, localities kind of, kind of blend away in, in virtual environments. How can that kind of function, right? I think also but, it's like chemistry of people, right? You're talking yeah. about like keeping people together too, right? I think machine learning can definitely help with that. I mean, already like, this is one other idea that I had. It's like, I think right now the YouTube recommendation system is like crazy good, <laughs> right? Like it basically knows oh, yeah. exactly what you want to watch. And then the way that they, um, their system work is like they find people similar to you and then recommend content that they liked to you, right? So I think even like with YouTube in general, you can already find people who have like similar personalities, right? Who like similar content. I think um, probably like YouTube subscriptions are like the best way to tell someone's personality in my opinion. Um, but yeah, what if you had like that sort of systems, but like internally built into school, right? I think it's, it's not only about like their skills, it's also their personality, like whether they vibe <laughs> or like the way they talk or the culture that they grew up in. Um, the only problem with that is also like, we want diversity too. Right? Mm -hmm. We don't want people to just cling it into like their own groups. That's something else to figure out is yeah. How can I, there's definitely a lot of psychological research, like even with personality types, which types go best together. Um, there's like a lot of research in that field. I think one key is to just bring all that research into the actual systems, right? I find that super almost like weird that people are not yeah. taking advantage of the research. Like, do you know, do you know who Scott Galloway is? L2 Inc. He's, he's really great. Um, at, uh, he's a NYU professor and he also runs his own analytics company called L2 Inc. He, he talks a lot about uh, the new age problems of these large companies. So he, he's writing a case on why Amazon, Google, um, Apple, and Facebook should be broken up because they're too big. Because those four companies combined, right, they hire 700, over 700,000 of our, the world's brightest minds, right? Wow. Engineers, lawyers, doctors, you name it, right? PhDs, they all work at these four companies, 700,000. Put that into perspective, the Manhattan Project, right, hired and maintained 300,000 of the world's greatest minds, right? So these four commercial enterprises is where 700, over 700,000 world's greatest minds end up because why? They, they have the money for it, right? They have the money to maintain the infrastructure. And what do they all focus on? Ads and how to sell better Nissans, right? Like how to sell things better to other people. It's consumers. They're feeding consumers. And all the biggest minds are focused on consumers. Hmm. And part of this idea, like following him, I started realizing, I mean, you talked about it too. YouTube search algorithm is so godlike. Right, but why is it so limited to recommending videos and to recommending, um, recommending you know, the type of ads to run on those videos? It is a commercial enterprise. And how many thousands of minds are working on better than that tool, right? I mean, what if we can break it apart and create like almost a information layer where everyone's data is stored on like almost a unilateral server that's ag agnostic of companies, governments, and even individuals? It's almost like a public service, like a, like a decentralized network, like a decentralized public good. And every single person 
you know, kind of like how you would have your own like a passport to your nation, a citizenship to a country. Because like you get you get like a like a like a a passport to this network, and that feeds in all your data, all the commercial like everything from like YouTube to like you know any apps, whatever, even your phone bill, whatever kind of stuff, right? Will feed into this data pool that is you. You own it. It's controlled by you, but it's logged into this larger framework, right? And because all companies are transacting to uh, through it, the data is much richer than it than it is siloed in these individual companies, right? And then you can do much more with it. Yeah, there's a few things that I'm a bit skeptical about that, and mm-hmm. like a few things I'm confused on. One thing is like, I think. I don't think it's Google is like purely just like consumerism. Like they're actually, they're adding a lot of value into the world too. Like, I don't know. You've heard about Google X. Mm-hmm. It's like their moonshot company. And then under okay. there, they founded like Waymo, which is like the self-driving car company. And they're trying yeah. to like, basically the whole mission is like to solve the world's biggest problems. Um, yeah. Like, I think that's the first thing. But second thing is like, with breaking it up, because hmm. at the end of the day, it's, first you got to define like an objective right so let's say the objective is like to allow for more innovation in the world i do think there's a lot of waste of talent right now like people making freaking tiktok <laughs> like when they can build like some other billion dollar company that can i don't know like bring us to mars or something right um so i think that's one definitely one area but would breaking google up and all those big companies be the best way i don't have enough knowledge on this so i'm not fully sure um, but at and, the moment, you know, I would, I would agree with you on that too. Cause you know, you look at Google, you look at innovative companies, you're like, wow, you, they're the forefront of research. They're the yeah. forefront of bringing this cool new thing. Yeah. But the way I like Scott Galloway is that he looked at from a shareholder's perspective, hmm. these trillion dollar companies, they're so big. They, one of the main things is that you know, they're still a, a private enterprise and they still have to drive shareholder value. When you're a trillion dollar company, and your main thing to shareholders is that your stock price will keep going up. How do you keep your prices going up? Well, you're absorbing entire enterprises. So the reason they have the moonshot comp- companies is not just, oh, cool, we're Google, we're doing innovative things. It's also, we're going to break into these large industries and, or create new industries that we can grow into, right? And maximize shareholder growth, right? Yeah. And, and re- shareholder returns. So that is the, I guess, the, I guess the reinforcement tool he's trying to break apart. And when these big companies are chasing these, chasing these monetary values, they're swallowing up entire systems underneath it. And it's not necessarily pursuing the most common good. It's pursuing the most commercially profitable. Yeah. I think I have some maybe like bit controversial opinions on those aspects. Um, I think in my opinion, I, I'm not sure because that is a system that uh, you just described, right? But whether the outcome, like, or you're talking about like the motive behind those things, right? But perhaps the outcome might be good, right? Mm-hmm. Like, just because someone is aiming for profit, maybe the best way to make profit is to like add value to people and like create innovation. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I don't, I don't, I don't say I agree with them. Like, I'm not saying I agree with them. Like, I love Google, but like, mm-hmm. end of the day, when they took off, like, you know, their biggest thing they had since their inception was don't do evil. Literally on their mask, their mission statement was don't do evil. Last year, when they signed a, 
uh, what's it a multi-billion dollar co co contract with like Pentagon mm. to in order in order to to pretty much using their machine learning principles to make drones that are going to kill people, right? They literally like they like about hundreds of Google employees stepped up, and they actually removed "Don't do evil" off their masthead, wow. right? And I so full like full disclosure, I used to sell um, smart home equipment, Google's smart home equipment. The day that this ha that happened, I stopped. Hmm. I, I unplugged my Google, like my uh, Google Home, right? I called all my um, uh, customers that I've sold this to. And I told them, it's like, hey, I don't believe in the product anymore. You should remove it. Holy. Because I, I lost faith. Because I love, I love Google. I, I've been following Google since I was a kid, right? I like the, the search functions, how easy they make information flows, right? Um, I'm a Google fanboy. Everything I own, Google phone, Google, uh, Google uh, Pixel books. Right, because I like their, I like them as a company and what they stand for. Yeah. But the moment that shifted, they lost me. Yeah. You know, and I started questioning things, and I'm not the only one. You know, hundreds of Google employees left, and thousands more are still questioning. Yeah. Right, where they where they're going. So I, I absolutely understand what you're talking about, but I don't think yeah. the, the 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 I think I love the tenets of capitalism, but yeah. not everything can be solved by a private enterprise. True. Right. Sometimes you need some kind of overlying structure, restructuring of society, restructuring of government, restructuring of the way we yeah. do things that supersedes uh, the, the immediate capital gain and yeah. rebuild a system that's beneficial for everybody. Yeah. Right. I, I would agree with that. Um, yeah. I think the key thing also is like, how do you predict what will happen or how much risk, uh, how much risk are you willing to take? Like if you were to break it down, because for me, the, the way that I kind of define is like, how would you make a decision is like that is like the long-term economic benefit. I think that's a pretty good metric because um, if the economy benefits, usually it just means like everyone else benefits. There are probably like better metrics, but point is like, I would think about like the average quality of life in the future, right? So, hmm. It would be really difficult to predict like what will happen if you were to rate them. Like right now, I think the average quality of life is increasing with our current systems. Um, so yeah, I think like a lot of times, like we want to point these things out. It's like Google is evil, like, or <laughs> it's, or it's just like, I think I'm just playing devil's advocate right now, yeah, by the way. Yeah. But, yeah. Like, although right now we, we often just, you know, point these things out. Like there's a lot of outrage on the internet. I think, it's also important to like recognize that things are actually going pretty well. Like, mm -hmm. I think we're on a good trajectory. Prove me if I'm wrong. Cause uh, I don't have like all the data on this. However, from what I've seen, like technological progress is going pretty well right now, especially like Google, they're doing amazing works in like machine learning. Um, but again, I think it's good to also think about, okay, what's other systems that could uh, like work better. So for example, maybe breaking them up would work better. Um, but again, I think sometimes like we, see like one evidence and we're just like, that's bad. But um, like, this is just my personal philosophy. It's more like, okay, what is the system that will optimize average quality of life in the future? Right. Mm -hmm. And just because they did this, is this like a huge thing in like 10 years from now? Um, or is this more just like a temporary, like emotional reaction? Uh, and then the underlying like work that Google is doing from all other areas is actually increasing quality of life. That's the way that I'm looking at it. Yeah. 
No, absolutely. And I think that's a metric that's, that's very, very beneficial to think about. And I think, I think to Scott Galloway's point, the main thing is that, you know, it, you, at a certain level, a founder, a, a, when a founder starts a company, a lot, of, a lot of founders do this because they started the company to be a change maker, right? The company, the tool or vehicle to be, to initiate some kind of change in the world. Right? Those are the visionary founders that kind of you know, change the world because they, because they try. And, but at a certain point, they lose track of what they created because it's bigger than them. It's not just them under them. Right? I mean, look what happened to Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, I don't think he ever intended for a system to be made that can you know, hack elections and, and, and mess things up globally. But how many people are underneath him who are in charge that, that let the system fail? Exactly. Right? And now he's bearing the brunt of it, mm. right? So very quickly companies become overtake their initial values and have to become these like giant, giant, giant entities that kind of have to weigh in other factors, more commercial interests, more economic principles of growth at all costs, right? And that's a, that, that was, that's a benefit of, of, of when you break them up. So yeah. like to Scott Gilley's point, when you break up a overly large company, you actually create wealth. And it, it goes back to like Standard Oil, right? Standard Oil was when uh, back in the 1800s was taking over everything, all industries, because that oil is such a strong base. Just like Google has data yeah. as, like, and search queries as like this, as this, as, this, as this money pool is coming in, they took that money pool and they started buying up everything and they became bigger and bigger and bigger. And yes, they were creating innovative things and, and, and you know, bringing down the cost of production down and making everything cheaper and use it. But end of the day, it's a, it's a, it's the economy becomes shifted towards them. Right. And it, and they can overpowerly take over smaller companies and smaller companies are become challenged or the growth of small companies, the medium sized companies are challenged. That means that's less, um, as a consumer, um, less, less consumer, uh, I guess, uh, what's the word for it? But sorry, just a choice, right? Less things can come up and bubble up in the surface. So it's either one company's way or not, not, no, no other way, right? Um, so I, I think that's, like the, that's the idea behind it. But uh, anyway, other than that, like, I think one of the coolest things is to study history because like history kind of repeats itself. Yeah, I think that's what we're seeing here, right? So I, I talked to somebody earlier on the show uh, about how the pandemic right now is kind of similar to like the Spanish flu. Mm, yeah. Right. The Spanish flu, the way it affected the world is similar to how it's affected now. It led to a depression. And like we looking back at it now, like no one really talked much about the Great Depression and, and the effect of the Spanish flu on the Great Depression. And yet we're looking back and we're like, oh shit, this, this, there's correlations now. Right. Mm. But what happened afterwards was an explosion of growth. Right. It, it, it brought on the third industrial revolution where like, Mass production became a thing, right? And the school system that we, as we know it now, was built by that industry, Wow. right? So it was the Carnegie's of the world. It was the Rockefellers. It was, it was uh, Henry Ford. It was these private people who realized we need better ways of, of, of a labor pool. We need to train people to do mountainous tasks repeatedly over and over, over long, long day shifts. And we need to figure out who's going to be the factory worker and who's going to be the, the white collar uh, manager. And that's why school was shifted, right? Private money went into, it went into that to shift the curriculum. One, people were forced now to go to school. People forget that, like school, 
like back in the day, like not everyone's required to go. It became a law. Like if your kid didn't go, the, the parents can find, right? You can get arrested if you don't go to school. So it's a for, enforced. It's a huge actual uh, back, like a backlash about this. It was enforced by the government to make people go to school. So if you're a kid, you're not working, you're not hanging on the street, you're going to school, right? Became a, a nationalized thing. And every nation become adopting it. But the reason behind it was that to figure out how to filter uh, the society, the citizens. What are your skill sets? So if you're a D, C, D level student, right? You become like a, fa a factory worker. And if you're a B level, you become, you know, become a manager. A level, you become a higher level manager. And that became a filtering process for, for uh, society, right? So I think like at this point, as you're saying that, like, I like the way you're thinking of how do we restructure our school system? How do we radically change everything we do? Because I don't think there's enough thought behind that. It's yeah. funny, I've been asking people, right? Throughout the, throughout the last four weeks, we've had about, I think like 16 episodes. And that's like, because of the radical changes that's possible now, because of the destruction. Yeah. What, what would be the most radical change you would like to see? Hmm. Okay, that's a good question. Hmm. Give me a minute to think about this. Yeah. And to be honest, like nobody else had much of an answer, but you brought up on your own. You know, how can we radically change the school system? How can we radically change society as it, as it is? And now is our opportunity. Yeah. Right? And it is not just an opportunity, but it's an economic, it's good for economics because the fourth industrial wave is coming. Yeah, exactly. It, we need to filter society differently. We need to retool our citizens differently. We need to teach them differently. So to, in preparation for the type, the, for the minds of the future, yeah. right? How do we, how do we tool them and test them? I think it would be better if I just try to answer the question like, what do I think the major areas of technology that will have the most impact on the world in the future? And I'll talk more about like education too. Mm -hmm. I think there's like a lot that will change uh, or it has already happened. Like one thing that I found interesting with the industrial revolution is like before we like, we still needed humans to do tasks, right? Like there was, uh, you could say like machinery automation. So, you know, machines can do like repeated tasks, but no one can automate like the cognitive functions of a human, right? You can't have a human like translator. You can't automate that, right? I think one interesting now thing now that we see is like, you have Google Translate <laughs> or you have things like Grammarly, which is basically like a human editor. And it's, it's no longer just like automating repetitive manufacturing tasks. We're literally automating like cognitive tasks. I think that's a huge transformation that will completely change uh, the way that our society works and like the jobs that we have, like self-driving cars. I know Andrew Yang has talked about this a lot in his like speeches. It's like, all the truck drivers are going to get automated. You know, how do we train people now? Um, I think it will be a very hard question to answer because we can't really predict what will happen in the future. But I think, first, I, I would think about the areas where we will make the most impact in society, right? And then think about how can we optimize people for those areas or at least most people, um, like perhaps people, if you think about like a social hierarchy or how successful people are, like A-level student, how can we optimize at least the A-level student to be doing things that are impactful for, uh, for the world, right? 
how can we train them? And then for the B-level students, we can think about more, you know, what to do regarding that area. But I think I have some good ideas for more like for the top, I don't know, 10%. Like what are some areas that they could go into? Because right now, I think one thing I see is like, we're not training the top 10% to be exceptional. Like even if you get 100%, like 90%, you're still like one out of like a thousand. Like you're one out of, you're just another person out of like millions of people, right? And you don't really have any unique skills. You just have to rig the school system in your favor, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so, okay. So these are the four areas I would say that will have the most impact in society in the next 10, 20 years. If I have to choose the top four, I would say there's brain-computer interfaces, quantum computing, the no-code movement, and education, revolutionizing education. And I'll talk about each area in a second. So first I'll talk about the two technologies I think will have the most impact and realize that I haven't even talked about machine learning because I think machine learning compared to these two will seem like a, like seem really little. And let me explain. So brain computer interfaces, why I think this will be like a completely changed society is if you look in the past and you graph like technological innovation versus communication speed, and this will all connect back later. So like on the x-axis, you have like our communication speed. On the y-axis, we kind of have like the technological innovation or how advanced our civilization is, right? And you graph that. So first, let's think about all the other human species. I think it was like 30,000 years ago is when basically Homo sapiens like basically killed all the other sapien species. <laughs> and the reason behind that was interesting is because although they had bigger brains they had bigger bodies like neanderthals i'm pretty sure yeah they were more muscular they were even smarter genetically humans were able to beat them because we have language right we were able to communicate like tens of thousands of times faster because we can make like these sounds i'm making right now for them they can only make very simple sounds like yell or you know those uh, animal <laughs> uh, animal noises right with that it completely unlocked this whole other like realm of possibilities yeah. so like what I mean by that, uh, I guess, to put it more concretely, it is the amount of information we can pass down generation to generation completely increases. And that determines how much technological progress we can make, right? If I can pass down, let's say, let's say I discover like all the mathematics and then now I pass it down to the next generation, which is exactly what we're doing right now at school, mm -hmm. then next generation are going to be able to do so much more and they pass down their knowledge in the next generation, right? So using this kind of model, we can see this correlation of communication speed, how much, how fast we're able to communicate with each other versus how much technological progress has progressed. And uh, right now I'm assuming what we want is uh, more innovation into the world. At least that's what um, I personally want to see in the world. So that's what I mean by like the most impact. So why brain computer interfaces will make a huge impact and completely change the world is because it's basically our next step in increasing communication speed. And oh, just to explain, I forgot to explain what uh, brain-computer interfaces are. <laughs> Basically, it's like a way for humans to communicate with like computers, right? Right now, the way you input to computers is like with a keyboard, but the words per minute with that is like pretty slow. What if you can have a brain-computer interface that just reads your thoughts, for example? Of course, this is like super sci-fi, but I really think it will happen in like the next 20, 30, or like 50 years. But once that happens, we essentially make that jump that monkeys versus us that job, right? And if you just see the comparison between monkeys and us, and then try to read 
think that for now, us versus if we had, you know, brain computer interfaces technology to just read our thoughts, the amount of like difference in terms of civilization progress will completely change. So I think that's an area that we should really be looking into. And uh, there's a lot of ethical problems too with that, but I would say it's like less than machine learning because you're not going to have like, you're not going to have like AI take over with this is you're just increasing like your own intelligence almost using these types of uh, brain computer interface technology. So I think that's one area we should train people to get into it. Right. There's a lot of other technologies I want to talk about, like quantum computing, machine learning, but I feel like that would just get repetitive. So I'll just skip that. And I'll talk about some other areas that I think uh, we should have people get into. So now I'll talk about education. Okay. So I think, with education, the goal is to teach people skills, right? And now you can think about what's the most efficient way to do that. And you can break that formula down to like two parts. One is teaching people knowledge. Two is like how much knowledge they need to do it, do a certain task, right? What if you can decrease the amount of knowledge needed, right? Like what if instead of, so for example, right now, to build machine learning models. You gotta like learn the foundational math. You gotta learn how to code. What if you can take code outside of the equation? Anyone just like takes like five minutes can actually build a machine learning model, right? So that's one area I'm super interested in. So um, the epitome of that right now is the no code movement, right? Taking code out of the equation, completely like lowering the barrier to entry to, for example, machine learning or web development. That's a huge thing like Webflow, Weebly. I'm pretty sure uh, you definitely like many of you guys used that before. So I think the second area we should think about is like, how can we even lower that barrier to entry to going into all these different areas, right? Not just think about, okay, how can we teach people, but how can we make it? So um, the amount of knowledge that we have to teach people is much lower. Yeah, absolutely. I, I like a few of those key points that you talked about, like uh, especially the, the idea of that graph, right? Um, total human innovation versus an ability to communicate. Um, I think that's a scary graph if you really do think about it, because you're right, it's been a linear growth. Yeah. We can't think about how it would be if, it goes, if that goes exponentially. Actually, I would say it's less linear. Once we like invented the internet, it like completely exploded. And we can see like mm -hmm. the impact of that, right? But it's Absolutely. relatively low if we think about the difference between like monkeys and us and the difference if we had like brain computer interface technology. Right. If we could just like download info, uh, information to the brain, like 50 years from now, that would just completely change. Yeah. So it followed like, you know, verbal communication, written language, then like the exponential going upwards with, with internet and, and uh, machines. Right. Uh, and then the further being is brain human, uh, I'm sorry, machine. And uh, wow, I can't talk anymore. What's it? Brain uh, computer interfaces. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this is this is a really great point, right? So it's something I've been thinking about since the university days. One of my professors talked about this, right? It's like the the value of a PhD. Like everyone thinks about PhDs not anymore anymore, not so much anymore. But especially like about 10, 20 years ago, people thought PhDs meant like you're like the epitome of academia. You know so much, but actually you know a lot about a very particular state of knowledge. Yeah. Right. And you're not, you're not really general knowledge. You know a lot about a very at a peak of certain knowledge. There's one professor who had a really good way of putting it, right? It's like my job is to further research and think about this one point. So uh, one point in human knowledge. So he's like, the way to think about it is like, 
all of human knowledge is like a ball, right? As it grows, right? Like, you know, you know, math, like as a volume of sphere grows, like surface area grows, right? Exponentially grows. Yeah. So as the, as the ball of knowledge grows, the, the ability for us, the ability for, um, I guess, specialized, specialized knowledge grows. So hundred years ago, it used to be biology, bloody yeah. field. But now we have biochemistry, bioneurology, you know, biophysics, uh, right? All these different things, all these sub, subcategories. And, and, you know, as more and more subcategories grow. Because as, that, as the knowledge base grows, it opens up more floors of thinking, more spheres of micro-knowledge, right? Of like of more condensed knowledge. So it goes to the point, like, it's like each, each academic, each scientist, their job is like, if you think about all human knowledge as like a ball, right? You zoom up on it. Their job is like, like a needle in yeah. their field. It's helping that needle grow, right? Like, like, it's, like a, it's like a mountain that grow. And then everyone, all the other specialties are growing their own mountain. And eventually they converge together to create like a more superstructure that kind of forms together. And now a new breadth of knowledge has come up. And some areas is growing faster than others and like other ones are a valley and that catches up maybe, right? But over time, the sphere of knowledge grows. But what happens when like it gets, it gets supercharged by the interconnectivity, when it's no longer up to the individual to relearn and, and retask themselves and then, and then further it, but they can actively, actively um, what is it, uh, like immediately have access to all spheres of knowledge at the same time, right? Instantaneously, like, like kind of like the matrix where we can download knowledge yeah. or download a skill, download ability. What happens at that point, right? And that's what we talk about the machine learning, uh, sorry, the machine, the human computer interface is yeah. that's that, that's, that's a singularity point in consciousness. Exactly. Where we kind of blend, right? And we become something else. So in biology, there's a, a, one of the biggest problems in neuroscience is that for us to become smarter, we're actually stuck, right? So yeah. the, like, we've been contained, our intelligence has been contained by the limitations of the human birth canal. So the fact that one of the reasons why as primates, like we take what years, three, three to four years to develop as an infant, where we're super reliant on our mothers, that became a thing because of how big our brains are, right? Our, the fact that our, 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 like our skull does not form as an infant because it's actually for it to come squeeze out of the birth canal. Because if it gets any bigger, it's gonna, you're going to kill your mom. You're going to kill your mother coming out. Yeah. And it's literally, it's like, it's like we've hit this, hit this uh, linear curve of like brain mass to ability to reproduce. Yeah. Then that's been a limiting factor for the past, you know, a few tens of thousands of years. We can't great increase our brain capacity. Now, on top of that, you add to the fact that our consciousness, are the, what differentiates, uh, makes us different from all the animals who are not communicating, who are not conscious, or not as actively conscious as us, or same level of consciousness, is is uh, the neocortex, the super thin layer of material that, go, that covers our brains, right? That's all that's really, that's the main part that's hyper, that's, that makes us hyper, um, I guess, effective as humans. For us to even capably increase that, we're limited. But the ability of, the, of a human computer interface is the ability of a new neocortex, right? The ability of having a newer level of depth of knowledge, of consciousness. Right, so have you ever uh, looked at um, Simon Sinek, The Golden Circle? Hmm. I read some of his books, but not that one. Yeah, so The Golden Circle, The Golden Principle. It's a YouTube video that blew up. You should check it out. And it's like a 10 minutes long. It's, it's, one of the, it's one of the foundations 
of neuroscience, like a lot of neuroscience principles he talks about in the way of, of uh, he blends out with society and, and, and business. And, and sorry, in the, in the terms of leadership, right? But the key takeaway behind that is the way we evolved as, 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 as mammals, as humans, as, as organisms in general, right? So it bred into our neurochemistry of our brains is, the, is, is on the brainstem is like, the, is like very primitive instincts, right? Eat, sleep, right? Uh, reproduce, all those things are like part of the brainstem. Secondly, that is the mammalian limbic system that has all your emotions, that have, you know, the need for love, need for intimacy, that's like, you know, the dopamine receptors are built in there, right? So that when you hug each other, you, you know, you feel something, right? Like you can come, you know, like more deeper, deeper kind of connection on top of that. Then on top of that, the neocortex. So it's very thin layer, it's very new, relatively new, not just to us, but to all of life as we know it, right? And that's where communication comes from. Knowledge, understand it, empathy. Like these things, these higher level parts of consciousness that makes us us come from this new layer that's tiny above. But these strains of, but we are, it's built on top of these older archaic principles. So it's kind of like the internet, right? And you look at it like the internet being built on legacy systems, right? We see the, the internet right now, but then we also know that the dark web is, is like these, is these key infrastructure within the internet that's been built upon its, on, on, on its principles. And there's another, uh, another thought leader behind this is uh, one of the guys who was part of the foundational, he was part of the guy, he was part of the, he, was, he laid the foundation for the World Wide Web, building the internet. I forgot his name right now, but he talks about the next stage of the internet, right? He's talking about the fourth stage of the internet. So the internet, when it first came to be, was internetworking of, uh, internetworking of computers, right? Of like individual computers. Then it became inter it became hyperlinks, internetworking of of like of links of websites of knowledge, right? A higher depth of interconnectivity. Yeah, that makes it makes the entire system smarter and stronger and more resilient, right? Yeah. And then there's IoT coming up now, right? Which is Internet of Things being connected to this thing. So the internet is now taking physical space. Mm -hmm. And the fourth stage being the human computer interface, the blending of human and machine together. Right, where the creative output of individual humans come together with the mechanical capabilities of, of, of computers, but also blending two knowledge bases. One being our, uh, one being the, the individual primitive in instincts, right? Yeah. And, and our mammalian instincts of, of, of love, compassion, and all these emotions with this global mass of intelligence, which is internet, right? Yeah. And the way he talks about it is like the internet and these computers and all the mechanics behind it, like every, every chip is kind of like a neuron in your brain. And the more we add into the system, the smarter the entire system becomes. And when we blend into it, the system and us will become smarter together, right? So, I mean, I think that's the real, real promise behind the human computer interface is exactly. we're gonna see the birth of a new type of species. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of like fast-tracking evolution almost. Yeah, uh, on the Joe Rogan podcast, they talk about this, right? Is that is um, it's, it, I forgot the the scientist who came up with this idea, but it's like we are the sex organs of the machines, <laughs> right? We're the we're the ones forcing machines to reproduce for now until they become evolved, and we blend in with them 
and birthing a whole new different type of type of, type of uh, creature, right? Or type of uh, type of life form. Yeah. So, it's super interesting talk, man. It's super interesting things to talk about and think about. But uh, let's see where the future lies and where we are placing it. Yeah. Okay. So, Michael, man, it's been over an hour. Like we just kind of blew, just kind of blew by. Wow. Um, I'm kind of half tempted to keep it going. But yes. you know what? Well, let's cut it and uh, cut it here, mm-hmm. and uh, let's do another one. Like I love this kind of thinking. Like, like yeah, now I have like some other ideas in mind. It's also like I think one thing that we kind of didn't talk about also is like I don't think school should just be about knowledge. Like, how do you train people? Right? People are not just knowledge machines. It's also like a lot of soft skills, right? And like mindsets. But let's that will be for another time. <laughs> Make sure to oh, cool, cool. subscribe and like the video, of course. <laughs> Yeah, cool. So, Michael, where can people find you? Yeah, uh, you all the more stuff they want to do. Yeah. So, I release, I release a lot of like self improvement mindset related videos on my YouTube channel. Just search up Michael E, my full name on YouTube, and you should be able to find me. Uh, you can also find me on LinkedIn or email realmichaele at gmail.com. And yeah. Cool. Um, so, just stick around for a few minutes. I'm going to cut the episode here. <laughs>